uh, you'll only need the first verse. Scares some of you to death, I know already. You're calculating. If there are three or 433 verses in this book, that is 433 sermons. Let me say to you that this is not likely that we'll have other Sundays where there'll just be one verse. Brother Jim was close in Sunday school this morning where he said a couple of years from now we'd be over in chapter 9, 10, or 11, wherever. We'll be fortunate if we're in chapter 9 by two years with this rate. But verse 1 is where we'll have and focus most of our attention. But I'll read the first three verses. Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's a semicolon there, but we mentioned to you before that the first sentence runs through the seventh verse. So one sentence goes seven verses, but we've taken out of it for the first three verses for reading, and we'll focus on the first verse as far as the concentration of the message today. As I was uh, studying, and I have been studying Romans now for several months, and gathering books and material and reading and thinking and setting down with the, the book of Romans, I, I read Romans from a different Bible than I carry and preach from because I don't want any notes in it. I don't want to preconceived thoughts. I want to read it fresh. I want to look at it all brand new, as it were. And so in that Bible, I, I'm just reading through it. As I was thinking, I, I was reading some passages again, and I read chapter 1 again this week. And as I did, the beginning of the, the book and so forth, I remembered a story that I heard years ago, and I went into my library and I found it. It was in a book uh, uh, by Paul Ariant. I don't know if you know Paul Ariant or not, but uh, Paul Ariant is Paul Harvey, who, uh, who gives the rest of the story. If you've heard him, uh, you know, um, uh, Paul Ariant is Paul Harvey's son who writes all those. Uh, Paul Harvey doesn't write those. You thought he was brilliant? He's not that brilliant. It's his son who's that brilliant. Paul Ariant wrote all of them, and Paul Ariant has written a whole book of the rest of the stories. And, and uh, someone years ago gave me one, and it's been a very valuable tool. And I remember reading a story out there that came to mind when I did that. I want to read you the rest of the story about a person. And I think it reminded me of this setting of Romans. It says in July 19, 1948 edition of the Time magazine, under the heading of National Affairs, under the subheading of Heroes, there was a heroine, a heroine, a young woman newly awarded the Medal of Freedom, a lady they called Joey. Joey was, in fact, Mrs. Josefino Guerrero from Manila, a society figure in her native country. During World War II, Joey was a spy for the United States of America. She was the best. For all the secret maps and messages she carried back and forth across the enemy lines, she was never apprehended and never searched once. How Joey was able to achieve her remarkable wartime record is the rest of the story. Josefino Guerrero was the, uh, the toast of Manila. She was a young, pretty, vivacious person. Her husband was a wealthy medical student in Santo Thomas University. Everything was going her and their way. That was before the war. After the Japanese invaded the Philippine Islands, Josefino joined her friends, the other young matrons of Manila, and together they worked to help the internees and the U.S. prisoners of war, bringing them food and clothing, medicine, and messages. When the Americans landed in Latte, Josefina offered to become a spy. She had already gained valuable experience in the Manilan underground. She would be the best spy in America they had ever had, she said, and we agreed. On her first mission, she mapped the waterfront fortifications of the Japanese troops and the locations of enemy anti-aircraft batteries. 
Armed with nothing more than a sketchbook and a pencil, she prowled the restricted areas according to all that she saw and recorded all that she saw. From Josephino's drawings, American planes were able to pinpoint their targets. The success of this and of subsequent missions earned Josephino the respect of her allies, and it brought her an affectionate nickname, Joey. Joey, it seemed, could do no wrong in pursuit of espionage. Because of her conspicuous bravery, many near-impossible tasks were accomplished in the line of duty. One mission took her through 56 miles of Japanese encampments. 56 miles of Japanese encampments and checkpoints and freshly sown minefields. With a top-secret map taped to her back, she trudged those 56 miles on foot. For three years, Joey continued her cloak-and-dagger career. Then one day, the war was over. And with it ended Joey's job as a spy. A grateful U.S. War Department awarded her the Medal of Freedom with Silver Palm for having saved untold numbers of American lives. But if there was one testimony to her ultimate success in espionage, it was that she still lived to tell about it. Joey Josefino Guerrero was never caught, stopped many times by suspicious Japanese. She was never apprehended. She never even once was searched. For Joey had a secret weapon, an unconditional insurance policy to which any other spy would be unlikely to subscribe, an impenetrable barrier, if you will. Her unfailing deterrent to those who would detain her was an authentic disease. She had leprosy. True story. Probably fitting as we think about our wartime with Pearl Harbor. But in this particular story, what's interesting and what reminded me, it was the circumstances of this woman's life, Joy, Josefina Guerrero, that uh, made it possible for her to be the ideal spy in World War II in Manila. As I thought about that, it was the Likewise, the circumstances of the Apostle Paul and the credentials that he possessed that made him the ideal author of the book under the inspiration of God, of the book of Romans. But the fact of the matter is, when you come to understand the fact that Paul had never been to Rome, and yet he was writing a letter, an epistle to these people as we would write a letter to a friend, it would seem almost necessity in order for them people to embrace what he was about to say that he more fully and completely introduced himself. So that's what we get into in chapter 1, verse number 1. This is what Paul says about himself and why the people at Rome should embrace what he has to say. I call your attention to verse number 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The very first thing that Paul the Apostle says about himself to introduce himself is that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting to me when that in reflection of this, it, to me, reflects the arresting grace of God in his life to start out with the fact that he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you think about it. If you were going to tell somebody who you are, would you start out saying, I just want you to know I'm a servant? That's not likely. That's not likely. Likely is that you'll tell them the highest appraised position that you've been given. You know, I tell people all the time, I am the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church. 
I had uh, our Mormon friends who were roving our area, came to our door on Friday. Judy had the girls in for their regular piano lessons, and, and the doorbell rang. I was back in my office in the back. I went to the front of the house, and there was two young men standing on the front porch. And as I went out, uh, these young men had their badges on, elder so-and-so and elder so-and-so, and one was standing on the step, one was standing on the, on the porch of our house. And the first thing out of my mouth was, I'm Pastor Rick Henry of the New Life Baptist Church. I just want to make sure we get that clear right up front so there'll be no discussion further down the line. And the guy said, oh, the church right up over the hill here. I said, yep, that's the one. And our, our service, our contact, our discussion continued from there. My thing about that is, one, I am honored with that position. And it is an honorable position. Not telling you the guy in it is honorable, but I am telling you that it is an honorable position. And I always want to tell people, I'm honored. And I sometimes will pray. And men who pray with me on Saturday morning, I often will thank the Lord for the privilege of being the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church. Because that's a high privilege. That's an honorable position to be in. Well, the fact of the matter is, when I go talk to people, I will tell them that I am the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm glad for it. I'm not saying I'm deserving. I'm just saying I'm pleased that I have that position. That's exactly the way Paul comes on, but he doesn't talk about being the pastor of the church. He talks about being the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting thing to me, especially when you know that this thing of servant, the word there is the Greek word doulos. When you understand the word doulos and what the word in the Greek really is all about, uh, you don't look at this thing as really being such, quote, honorable. That is, the public at large would not. Well, let me just tell you what it is. The ideal of doulos is not servant that you and I would have in mind. When you and I talk about servant or think in terms of a servant, uh, we typically would think of someone who would be a, a, a person who would wait on tables at a restaurant. Oh, here's a servant. I'll be your server. You know, you, you've had people come to you if you've been in a restaurant and say, I'll be your server. I'll be, I'll be your servant is what they're saying. Well, that's not the word that Paul used here. That ideal of waiting on tables was used by Paul over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, back when we studied and preached through 1 Corinthians. When we came to chapter 3 and verse number 5, Paul said, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers? That word there, ministers, means in the Greek, somebody who waits on tables. A guy who serves you and ministers to you on what we call that kind of level of need. So Paul used that word back there. That's not the word he uses here. Doulos, and, and this is important, it literally is the ideal of a bond slave. Paul is saying, I am doulos. I am a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how many people in this room, how many people in this room have ever shaken the hands of a slave? You see your hands? You've ever shaken the hand of a slave? Nobody in this room has. I have. His name was Andrew Johnson. When I was a small child, my father and cousin led Andrew Johnson to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived in our city. He was, by the time I was there, was up in his 90s or so. And there was a group of people who had kept him a slave beyond any of the approved legal, you know, we call prohibitions and whatever. And this man was kept a slave for a lot longer than many, many people were a black man. Andrew Johnson, a black man, stooped in years and he walked with about this kind of being and he walked with this because when he was a young man, they'd broken his right leg because he ran away. His hands were as hard as the surface of this pulpit. When he shook hands and he'd look up and he'd do like this and he'd shake your hand, his hand was so hard on the inside you wondered, how could it bend? How could it, without cracking and breaking and so forth? But my father had the privilege of finding him 
And they, let me tell you, he lived in a house of which there was no road to. I mean, the, the county and the state and people had bought and sold land around him. He owned a piece of property in the middle of them and no access. Back when there was no ordinances that said you have to give this guy access to his house. Here was a man who had actually become a slave in a society right now and couldn't get to and from his own house in a vehicle. He was fenced in. Anytime he left his house, he had to climb fences. My father and my cousin climbed the fences to find the man in the house. Somebody told him there's an old slave that lives in the house over there. And my father and cousin went to visit Mr. Andrew Johnson. When they found him, he had very little of anything. And my father, the first day, invited him to come to our house to have lunch. And my mother fixed a meal, and Andrew Johnson sat at our table and ate a meal with us as a young kid. And my father then told the story how that when they visited him, they led him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. There's still something inside of me that feels rather honored that at our table sat a slave who had been freed. Not so much freed from society and the legal transactions that President Lincoln had maybe implemented, but he sat there a free man in the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who knew freedom like probably no slave before him had really known freedom unless they too had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kind of slavery that Paul's talking about, the doulos here, is the kind of slavery that Mr. Andrew Johnson experienced. The kind of thing that you had no control over your own life with. Mr. Johnson would said and introduced himself as a servant. He said that to our family. The fact of the matter is, that's all he knew of himself. That's all he grew up thinking. That's all he thought about. He thought himself a servant, a slave, if you please. Now, here's the picture. If you'll get the ideal of a doulos of the word servant in verse number one, you're going to have to get a picture of a slave market, and you're going to have to get an, uh, an ideal of a, of a little city, maybe like Franklin with, with cobblestone streets, and you'll see a block of wood in the middle of the town square. And what would happen is there'd be a group of people who had captured slaves, and they would bring them to that block of wood one by one, chained at the feet and in their hands, and they would stand them on that block of wood, and an auctioneer would begin to quote prices. And then it would be that people in the crowd who were the rich people would raise up with, with, with hand or with some colored, usually it was colored paper, and they waved it. And it indicated what, uh, what plantation was buying this slave. And consequently, the bids would go up, and then finally the auctioneer would think that would be enough of that guy. He'd sound his hand or a, usually the handle of a gun against a barrel, and he'd say, sold, and he'd call out the color and the color represented the plantations. By the way, to some of that, the same thing that when they have horse races, they have jockey colors. Some of those were coordinated to the same. The fact of the matter is that that slave then would step off the auction block. He kept his chains. He was loaded in a wagon, and he was taken to a plantation. Sometimes when he got to a plantation, he was then branded. Sometimes it was in his ears. Sometimes it was on the back of his neck. As with Mr. Johnson, his was on the back of his neck. He had a brand, a small one. And that brand indicated who he belonged to. And even if he got away and ran away, somebody would find him, see the brand on his neck, and send him back to where he came from. That was a doulos. He was not his own. He had no rights whatsoever. He was fully and totally committed to his master because he couldn't survive in a society without his master because everybody, everybody ran into or ran away from would send him back to that same fellow. He couldn't go anywhere. It was almost like the master was omnipresent. It said among the historians that there was three ways you could get rid of that stigma, per se. One of them was, is if the master died and left no discretion to statements concerning the slaves. Meaning, if he did not decree that the slaves would pass on to his family, then the slaves were freed when the master died. Secondly, it was said that if, in fact, the 
individual could raise enough money, then he could pay himself out of his freedom. He could earn enough land, money, and he could somehow put it aside so it would be that he would indeed be freed by virtue of paying for his own freedom. Or the slave could die and be free. So there was only three ways that you ever got out of that kind of slavery. By the way, Paul uses the term doulos of Christ in this context to say that I'm not alone. Truthfully, every Christian in this room is a doulos of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. Paul had written to the Corinthian church, the passage we'd studied back a long time ago in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God? Ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul says, you've been bought with a price. You were in the slave market of sin, and the Lord came, as it were, and bought you back from the slave market. There may be people in this room this morning who are still in the slave market. You are still enslaved to sin. You still are at, quote, the mercy of sin. Whatever it is the flesh wants, you submit. You give in. You do whatever the flesh says. And, and you just simply bow down to it. And, and my friend, you're a slave and you have to accept that. The only people who ever get set free from slavery of sin who people acknowledge they're slaves of sin. I am a sinner. What is a sinner? A sinner is a person who knows he's enslaved to sin. And he knows without some help from the outside, he's not going to be set free. He's just like a slave in the slave market set on an auction block. Unless this master does something drastic, he's going to die a slave to sin. And the fact of the matter is, something unlike what happened in the early slavery, this particular slavery, you can't buy your way out of. If you had $10 billion today, you can't pay your way out of the slavery to sin. There is nothing you could buy that would set you free from the slavery of sin. But there is good news. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, since you've been bought with a price out of the slave market of sin, glorify your master. Honor him with your behavior and your work and your life. You say, well, what kind of price did he pay? Glad you ask. Peter gives us the answer to that. 1 Peter chapter number 1 verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or lifestyle received by the traditions of your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's an amazing thing. The price for your being set free from the slave market was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, you need to get this in your heart. If you have been set free from the slave market of sin, it was by the purchase of the Lord Jesus Christ for you, and it was of His blood that was the price. You need to grab hold of that and get it in your heart. As we march, or maybe a better word for Brother Jim's sake, is walk through the book of Romans, we'll tell us that a person who has not trusted Christ as Savior is still presently, present tense, still in bondage to sin. Still there. What's sad about that is that the master has already paid the price for you to be set free. It's like a master coming up to a slave auction and saying, you see all these people who are waiting to be put on the auction block? And the auctioneer says, yes, I, I see all them. The master says, here, I'm going to write you a check for all of their, their, their effects, to pay for all these slaves, and I want all of them to be free. All of them. 
And it'd be like the master sitting down, writing out the check, giving it to the auctioneer, paying for all the slaves that are left in the market. And when it comes to you, you say, no, I, I'm going to, I want to be my own man. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do what I've always done, live the way I've always lived. I'm just going to keep on doing this thing. My friend, that'd be absolutely foolish on the part of a slave, historically speaking. You'll forgive me, but it's just as ignorant and foolish for you as someone for whom the price for your sin has been paid to continue in a slave to sin. You'd never find a slave who'd stay a slave if he had the choice of being a freedom, unless his master had proven himself loyal, kind, and gracious. Scriptures in the book of Exodus tell us of an occasion. If the, if the slave chooses to stay with the master, they'd bring him to a, a doorpost and they'd drill a hole in his ear. And that indicated, and they put within it a, usually a tag that would indicate that this particular slave, by choice, is staying with his master. He loves his master. He loves his family that had been born to him in the master's house. And therefore, he's staying there. By the way, that's the kind of master we have who are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a master that beats us. We don't have a master that, oh yes, he corrects us. Chastening the Lord is in order when we have sinned. But it's not for his sake. It's not for his pleasure. It's for our good. And we are chastened to the Lord that things in our life might be removed so that we can be what we ought to be. By the way, I remind you in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3 and verse number 16. 2 Corinthians three sixteen. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. A couple of things. This passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 fits our text in a, in several ways, but point of fact, what is being said in 2 Corinthians 3.16 is talking about the Israelites, and it's talking about the veil that's over their hearts, their minds, to see truth. If you're here in this room this morning and you're still a slave to sin, you have been blinded by Satan's acts. The God of this world blinds the minds of men, women, boys, and girls to keep them from seeing Something that sounds to them like contradiction. If you walked up to a man on the street and say, My friend, uh, I'm the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church, and uh, I just want to share with you that I'd like for you to become a slave. What do you think he'd say? You think he'd say, Excuse me, you want me to live a slave? You give me a break, my friend. I, I, man, I go out and drink, and I do drugs, and I, I sleep around, I do whatever I want to do, and you're trying to tell me you want me to become a slave? Are you nuts? We say, yes, we want you to become a slave, but we want you to become a slave to a good master. Not the, not the, the master of sin, the slavery of sin. We want you to come to a good master. Wow, oh, man, I enjoy life. I'm having a ball. and it's just having fun. And boy, we're just living it up and all that. And uh, that's true. People enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And anybody in this room who doesn't think sin is fun is nutty. Sin is fun. That's the gravitational pull toward it. And there is within every one of us that old nature, if you please, that draws us magnetically to that kind of pleasure. So we're drawn to it. And so what keeps us from it? I'm a slave to another master. I've been set free from the claims of sin. Oh, does that mean I never sin? Absolutely not. But it means that I have the power to say no to those claims when I desire our problem is not we don't have the power. Our problem is we don't have the will to do it. 
For any of you who sit before me this morning, and you may have a smoking habit. You say, man, I'm addicted to smoking. I've smoked all my life. Man, I can't quit. Oh, yes, you can. When your will to quit smoking is greater than your will to accept smoking, then you'll quit. Or when you begin to carry the oxygen tank around with you wherever you go, you'll quit smoking. Because if that thing gets lit with any, any flame, you could be blown to a million little pieces. And you won't smoke then. So see, it's a will. Was there anything different than carrying around an oxygen tank and, and saying two weeks before that you didn't want to quit? No, 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 no. Just your will. That's what changed the perspective is your will. And your will has to be molded by the master. But when it continues to get molded by fleshly desires and fleshly lust, you'll just keep doing what you've always done. But back to this verse in 2 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, when he talks about the it in there, he said, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, he's talking about the heart of the Israelites. He says, when their heart gets out from behind this blindness, when they quit standing behind this shield, this thing they can't see through, and that blindness is taken away, and their heart then, as it were, turns... To the Lord. It's interesting what he says. He says, The veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Let me tell you what he's talking about here. Where the Spirit of the Master is, the Lord, the slave owner, is, there's liberty. So when he's invited us to become a slave, a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said the catch is when you come to know this master, there's a liberty. There's a freedom. Where the spirit of this master is, there is a freedom to say no to sin. By the way, I don't believe a man who does not know Christ can say no to sin. I believe he is just hook, line, and sinker going to give in and go, go along. His only hope is, by the way, that's what I thought was so foolish about the, the presidential... Uh, the White House programs years ago of just saying no to things, that's easy said, that's hard done when you have not had something reborn in you of the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Spirit of the Lord that makes the possibility of saying no to sin possible. Otherwise, you're just going to go along for the ride. So where there is the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty and there is the ability, I might add, to say no to those things that are detrimental to your health. So in the context of what Paul is saying here, the two points are, are reconciled, you know. And I say reconciled in this. We're born sinners, but he's saying that you can be set at liberty. And Lee, I think the best way to put it is this, that the only people who are really free are the people who have become slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the best way to put it. The only free people in this room, really free, are those people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, there is a freedom that only believers have and only Jesus gives. And that's when you trust Him as your personal Savior. And that makes the difference. Before we go too far away from this word servant, let me call your attention to a couple of things that I must comment upon. One of them is, he says, and it's important here, anyone saved for any length of time who reads much of Paul's writings will know that his writings, his letters, are just filled with references to the Lord Jesus Christ. These first seven verses are a very good illustration of that. As you read through the seven verses of chapter number one of Romans, over and again, Paul refers to Jesus Christ as title, by name, phrases, pronouns. I say to you, this is a good test 
of all of our Christianity. You see, because many people are convinced of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. There are many people who can articulate the doctrines of the Scriptures. But the big question is, do they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You can get on the radio and hear guys who will articulate some of the Christian faith doctrines. But you always question, does this guy know Jesus Christ as Savior? Years past, there were books written by men who articulated well the defense of the Christian faith, who in the end said they were not believers. Wrote it in the postscripts of their book. So it's not uncommon that you have people who have, as it were, are convinced of the truthfulness of the Christian faith, who can articulate the Christian faith, but just don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. And that, my friend, is what the Apostle Paul will work to make sure that the Romans are not caught up in, that they don't know a lot of, quote, religious kind of stuff, but don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. I called your attention to a second thing, and it's important here. The description Paul gives of himself, and he incorporates this word servant, is definitely a missing link, as it were, or a missing element in the life of many believers. Now listen to me carefully. If you're saved by the grace of God, you were not redeemed out of the slave market of sin to sit down. Now listen to me. Now think about it. This idea of a slave is likened to an auction of slaves and the Lord Jesus Christ came in, as it were, and paid your sin debt and rescued you from the slave market. Now get a picture of this. Can you imagine a plantation owner in the South back years and years and years and years and years ago and he purchases the slave, he takes him home, he feeds him, he provides his needs and this this slave just sits around all day long? I mean, he's sitting out there under the tree and he's got his legs crossed and he is just as comfortable as anybody could be. Can you imagine? You'll forgive me, but I bet that guy's back would be stripped to the bone with a whip. You know why? Because he's not his own. He understands he's been bought with a price and that price was whatever that that plantation owner paid for him and when he comes home, he has no right to sit there. Why? He didn't belong to himself. He can't think, I'm tired, I'm going to sit down. He's got to think, what's next on the master's agenda? What's next on the master's job description list for me to do today? But you'll forgive me, we somehow missed that when it came to the Christian faith. We got believers, forgive me, but haven't lifted a finger to do a single thing for the cause of Christ from day one when they were birthed into the family of God. There's something badly wrong with that. I mean, something really out of whack with that. We've either forgotten that we've been bought with a price. We've either forgotten the the price that was paid for us, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we're confused as a termite in a yo-yo about the whole process of what's this all about. Something is wrong. So Paul writes to these people in a sense to say, I just want you to understand that I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you die and they fix your tombstone, I'd say to you, he was a servant. She was a servant. It's not a bad epithet to leave to this world. They serve the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second thing, and I called you to it, called your attention to it in verse number one. And by the way, I'd certainly wish that the New Life Baptist Church was a church full of doulas, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts out with his position as a servant. Next, I want you to notice his power. In verse number one, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Paul's power, or you can use the word authority. It's the same ideal. And the ideal here, he uses the word called. 
called, as, as we use the word called. Ideal is used several different ways, but I call your attention to two that I, I think we need to keep uppermost in our thinking as you move through the book of uh, Romans. First off, I, I would tell you that there is a call of God to every sinner. When people are born into this world, they are born sinners. They are born slaves to sin. So the first thing that needs to happen is they don't need to go to church on Sunday and walk down the aisle and join it. They don't need to go to church on Sunday and walk up and say, Pastor Henry, I want to be baptized. They don't need to go to church on Sunday and when the offering plate is passed, get out their billfold and maybe they had a great week and they put in $10,000. That's not necessarily what they need to do first. What they need to do first is accept the call of God on their life to save and change them. That's salvation. Too many people want to serve God before they've been saved by God. And salvation always precedes service. It does not exclude it. Meaning, you don't just get saved and sit down. You, you get saved so you can serve. But you don't serve to get saved. You don't start out serving. You start out at square one, and that is accepting, believing, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It comes in the form of a call. Listen, here's an illustration of it. It's in Proverbs chapter 1, just an illustration. He says, Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have set it not all my counsel. That is, you've laid them aside, you've disregarded all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. On and on the passage go. We'll not read all of it, the whole passage of Scripture that leads in this, but the, the point made about the passage is then in verse number 30. He comes back and he says, excuse me, verse 33, he said, But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. Paul wrote over, and let me read this to you. It's in our book of Romans. Let me read it. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 15. Paul wrote this. He said, And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The fact of the matter, what the emphasis of that is, is there is a call. God gives that call. And He's calling on people everywhere, as it were, to come to Him and trust Him. By the way, I, I was thinking about this as I studied this passage of Scripture. I'm not so sure, but what we ought to change the name of what we call the conclusion of our service. What do we call the conclusion of our service? At the end of it, invitation. I'm not sure that's right. And I'll tell you why. I believe for biblical reasons. For instance, these reasons, two of them found in, right here in this one passage. Did you notice in, in Romans chapter number 10 and uh, verse number, uh, let's see, um, let me see, uh, verse number 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Verse 16. That's in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. For they have not all obeyed the gospel, the emphasis on obey. Then in a passage in Acts 17.30, and Brian touched on it this morning in, in Acts 17. Acts 17.30 says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now, at this moment, he says, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now think about it. Here's an invitation, and here's a command. You think we ought to come to the invitation and say, well, now look, you don't have to. 
It'd be a good idea if you did, but you don't have to. I think what God is saying, and I'm not being unkind, nor am I being blasphemous. I believe God's done all the work to save anybody and everybody who wants to trust Him. Based on what He's done, prepared, worked out, planned, and programmed, He turns to us and commands. You sit here this morning, you're without Christ, I believe He commands. You trust my Son, His Savior, and trust Him right now because eternity lurks just around the curve. And He's not doing it because He's unkind. He sees like it were a runaway train and you are on it. And He's saying, I'm telling you, get off that thing before this thing wrecks and takes you into eternity and into a Christless eternity at that. So I don't think it's an invitation. You say, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. What about the whosoever will may come? Glad you asked that. Whosoever will is not the ideal to, to, to vacate the ideal of a command. Whosoever will is an explanation of how simple it is to obey the command in the first place. He made the command. He worked out all the provisions. All that's left for lost mankind to do is obey the gospel. And the gospel is that Christ died for you. He was buried. He rose again. Now you must act upon that. I believe it's a command. He commands all men everywhere to repent. So rather than an invitation, I think it's an opportunity to obey. God commanded. He's not asking you to put anything in the offering plate. He's not asking you to be baptized. He's not asking you to join a church. He's simply saying, everything's done. All you need to do is obey the gospel. And I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, obey the gospel. So I believe when Paul comes to this thing and talks about a call, I believe there is incorporated in that, that concept. By the way, we call the church the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. The church of Jesus Christ are the called out ones. They're the people who obeyed the gospel, who obeyed the call. The call came. A parent calls for a child. Does the child always obey? Mm. Are there consequences to a child that will not obey a parent? Uh, they should be. That's part of parenting. That's part of training. That's part of leading a child in the ways of righteousness and rightness. And I'll tell you, when you disobey God... There are consequences. And sadly, when it comes to the matter of eternity and salvation, most often we don't realize it until we enter into our first step of eternity and it's too late then to go back and rewind the clock and start back here somewhere. So I say to you, the first principle in this particular case is this ideal of call is one that deals with the call of God for man's salvation. But in this context of chapter 1, verse 1, I'm confident of what Paul the Apostle is talking about is not a call to salvation. He was already there because he was already a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. And by the way, God would never call a man to be an apostle who had not first accepted the call to know the Lord. He doesn't call people to do things vocationally until, first of all, they have received Him as their Savior and Lord. And that's important because in this context, then, the word call carries with it the ideal of vocational. You see, back over in Acts chapter 9, in verse number 15, the Bible says, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. This is uh, the, the Lord talking to Ananias. And he says to Ananias, The uh, Lord said to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, that's Paul the apostle, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So what Paul is talking about here in verse number 1, a call, he's talking about the vocational call as an apostle. 
and he's talking about this vocational call, comes by two very clear qualifying points. One, reading the rest of Paul's epistles, especially the book of Corinthians, you'll find out that the only people who could be an apostle was one who had in fact seen the risen Lord. And Paul had on the road to Damascus. The Lord appeared to him. And secondly, it was that he must have been called directly by the Lord in order to be an apostle. That means that there are no apostles today. The New Life Baptist Church does not have apostles. By the way, no church has any apostles today because nobody has seen visibly the, the risen Lord. And nobody has been given direct orders from that risen Lord about the ministry they're supposed to pursue. There are no apostles. Now, wait a minute. The word apostle means sent one. And every Christian is a sent one. Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that falls upon every member of the church. That's part of this business of being a servant, a doulos. The master said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're servants. We're the doulosses. Therefore, our responsibility is that everywhere we go, we go, or as we go, we tell everybody we can what Jesus Christ has done for us. And say to them, He's done everything that need be done. I mean, He's not asking you to go die on the cross. He's not asking you to be buried alive in a tomb. He's not asking you to go join a church. He's not asking you to be baptized. He's simply saying Christ died on the cross. He paid all of your sins. And therefore, all you have to do is obey the gospel and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The two Mormons who stood at my front door on Friday, interesting thing. I don't know how long I talked with them. Uh, Judy could better tell me that. I was out on the porch, porch freezing to death, and, uh, and I didn't invite them in to talk. I thought it'd just be a brief thing, and they'd be on their way. But the conversation enlarged, and probably after 30 to 45 minutes, what was interesting about it, I, they came to a point where they challenged, in a sense, me. They said, what the difference is between our faith? And I said, well, I think there's some big challenges and differences. And I said, one of them, by the way, let me be honest with you guys. You're honest with me. Let me be honest with you. One of the most offensive things that you guys believe is the fact that you put my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, right alongside of, as a brother, Satan himself. I said, for Mormons to believe that Jesus Christ and Satan are brothers is the most atrocious thing I could ever think of in all of my Christian life. I said, of all the things you believe, that offends me. And I said, my church would tell you, you can't offend me, but that offends me. To tell someone that Jesus Christ and Satan are brothers? I said, my friend, I want to tell you something. You couldn't prove that if your life depended on that. There's no way you could prove that. And I didn't have a copy of the scriptures. I lifted up my hands like I did, and I thought, you know, maybe I, they'd appear or something. You know, I'm, I said, look, my friend, you couldn't take a Bible, and, and, and if I opened it up right here and handed it, you could not prove anywhere that that'd be true. And he said, we have that by revelation. I said, hmm, that's very convenient. Very convenient. You take it right out of the Bible or somewhere, and you hand it over to some guy who sits in Utah in a headquarters, and you say, he got it. That means I can't test it, I can't check it, I can't disprove it. It's very convenient for you. I said, there's one problem with that, my friend. If he's wrong, you're in a pack of trouble. The oldest of the two guys who was standing down on the steps spoke up and said, I don't care whether Jesus Christ and, and Satan are brothers. That's not the big deal here. I said, it's a bigger deal than you think, my friend. Because if you're wrong on that, you could be wrong on any of the rest of what you believe. And it's the same way with me. 
I said, if you take out one block of my belief system, of my doctrinal belief system, and you pull one block out at the bottom of the whole thing, the whole thing gets a little less stable. And if you turn to me and say, well, even if that's not true, we're still Mormons and we're sticking by our stuff. I said, you're on dangerous ground because you lost one thing that for hundreds of years you have taught. And my friend, I think that's a precarious position to ever get in. He said, well, what do you think it takes to get into heaven? I said, I don't think. I've listened to what God declared. And he said, what do you think it is? I said, it's very clear. That Jesus Christ came to this earth, and that's what Christmas is all about. Born in a manger of Bethlehem, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And He is the Father's only begotten, born of a virgin, deity of deity. And He died on the cross of Calvary, the only person who could have died for man's sins. And when He died there, He died for all man's sins for all time. And my friend, there is nothing that you can do to add to that. He said, well, is there some things you think your church teaches? I said, if my church taught anything else, it'd be heresy. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the sin debt. And there's nothing I can do to add to that. And if I do add to that, then it's heresy. And, and he said, well, our church believes you get baptized. And I said, then that's heresy. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. I said, did you get to have a revelation? And they looked at each other, and, and, and it's like the one guy, and I told my wife this, the, the guy who stood down was obviously the senior of the two, and he then spoke up very quickly when we got to that. And I said, by the way, baptism is an act of man. I said, and I think I did tell him last night, I asked him about, oh, then, then what do you do with the man, the thief on the cross? I said, I suppose you're going to tell me they took him down, baptized him, and put him back up there, right? And at that point, it was very obvious this, this discussion had gone far enough. So the guy down on the step, who, as I said, was the senior of the two, he said, look, we're not going to debate this any further. Obviously, you know what you believe, and you believe it, and you're not going to change our minds about it. I said, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm trying to simply show you that some of the things that you say you believe, you're really resting on a lot of other people who've said it before you. And it came down to you, and you've embraced it. My friend, I just say this to you. You better, be, you better pray that they're not wrong. And by the way, I remind you, it's a lot of men tied up in the Mormon church who got revelations. He said, well, don't you think the Apostle Paul made mistakes? I said, yeah. I think some of them are even recorded in the Scriptures. But the fact of the matter is, Paul, not one place, did anything to take away from the work of Christ on the cross. And when I closed with him, I closed with this. I said... Look, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. You agree? Yes, we agree, they say. Did Jesus Christ baptize anybody? No. Apostle Paul, would you not agree, wrote most of the epistles of the New Testament? Yes, he did. Would you not agree that from the Apostle Paul's epistles, we know more about what salvation is, how to get it, and how its process started and continued in the whole plan of redemption? Would you not agree that Paul wrote more about salvation and the whole process of the Christian life more than anybody else? Would you not agree? Yes. How many people did Paul baptize? And he said, I don't know. I said, well, I think I know. I think he, he baptized Gaius and Crispus. And, and other than that, I think he said, I, I don't think I baptized anyone. And then maybe later added one. I said, let's give him four just in case there was some guy we didn't know about. 
Now, my friend, you're telling me that baptism is essential to go to heaven and Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, never baptized a single soul and Paul the Apostle, who wrote more about it than anybody else in the world, only baptized four? Give me a break. If Paul knew that baptism was required, he was derelict of duty not to baptize everybody he ran into. Everybody who showed up at church in the synagogue, he would ultimately urge, exhort, and and proclaim to them, let me baptize you before you leave. He didn't say a word about that. Now, my friend, baptism is not a part of redemption's equation. What is involved here is what Christ did on the cross, and it is a done did. It's not to be done over. It's not to be added to. It's not to be subtracted from. It is a done deal. Christ died for our sins and it is a finished product. Paul mentions this concept. He's called to be an apostle. That calling is an invitation to come to faith in Christ, but then also a calling that puts you in a position of vocation to serve the Lord and bear the message quickly. I must get to the third in verse 1. And he says, he's not only a servant of Jesus Christ, he's not only called to be an apostle, he is separated under the gospel of God. This is Paul's principle for his life. And it's a principle in the sense that uh, being set apart under the gospel, it's, a, it's a, I think, very, very true. And I think we sometimes miss this. It's so very easily missed that to be effective in the ministry, if you want to be used of God in the ministry, whatever your capacity, you may be a Sunday school teacher, junior church worker, you may have a, a ministry, individual witnessing ministry, whatever you have. But I'll tell you this, it is important for you to understand, for you to be effective as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have to burn the bridges to the old life. There can be no going back and forth across the bridge and really live for the Lord the way you should. And that's really what Paul's talking about here. You've, uh, you've heard of uh, the Spanish adventurer and conqueror Cortez. It is reported that when... Cortez landed on the Mexican island and he, he simply um, had a stern warning for all of his men. First was, nobody was to make even an effort to go back. When it appeared that some of his men kept looking back, Cortez ordered that all the boats be dismantled and burned. And from Cortez's own statement, from then on it was either victory or death, but it definitely wasn't going back. That's what separation is. Separation is drawing a line and saying, I won't go back to what I was before I was bought from the slave market. I'm not going to enter back into the slave market. I'm not going to go back over there. That's not good for me. I've been saved out of it. I've been, I've been bought out of it, and I shall abstain from it. Listen, God's not saying that He wants Christians to be isolated from the world so much as He wants them to be insulated from it. You see, the insulation from the world is against the destructive and draining effects of sin and all of its influences on your life. And he knows that if you run with the dogs, you'll get fleas. And so he says, I want you to be apart from that. Paul was separated unto the gospel. Everything about the separation of Paul's life was aimed at not hindering the getting out of the gospel. You see, there ought to be a consistency between your desire to show people and tell people what Christ did on the cross and also a reflection of comparison to your life. I mean, it ought to be that in this particular case, people would listen to your message before, because they see the life of the messenger. Well, that doesn't mean you're perfect. There's nobody going to be perfect in this life. Nobody. Myself, yourself, the, anybody who walks on this earth with feet of clay, nobody's going to be perfect. That's not the point. The point is, you ought to be as pure and as holy and as much like the Master as you possibly can 
because it's in that context your message will be received most freely. You see, if you, you, if you live and do and exactly duplicate what you did when you were in the slave market, you're going to have a hard time selling anybody that you've been bought out. You're going to have a hard time convincing them that, that you are just like them. And yet they're not born again. And there's not a person in this room who maybe now knows Christ as Savior but was one time looking at Christians. And there's nobody in this room couldn't find some Christian who was a hypocrite. Anybody here who never saw a hypocrite Christian? Anybody? I have. I have never met anybody who hadn't seen a hypocrite Christian. And I'm sure I have been a hypocrite Christian. I am confident that that's a big stumbling block for non-believers. And so what Paul is saying is, I don't want to be a stumbling block. So I'm not going back across the bridge that leads back to the old life and to the likeness of the old world. I'm not going to do that. Not because I wouldn't like to. You think I wouldn't like to go back with the old boys and do all the old things I did before? Wouldn't you think in my heart and this body of flesh there's a longing, there's a joy at times to get back over there? Sure there is. Oh, how the world to evil allures me, the songwriter wrote. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. But do I do that? No. There's a lot of reasons, but one of them is very simple. I am separated under the gospel. I want to get the gospel out. And I don't want my life to be a hang-up or a hindrance to people saying, you know, look, Pastor, I, I watch you, observe you, and I'm going to accept what you tell me because I believe that you live what you're talking about. You see, I want people to have the compliments of a life to back up a truth. And I believe that's the context in which people hear the message of the gospel. I am sorry for all the people in the Christian faith that have come out as hypocrites that have ever offended one lost person from a believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry about that. I regret it deeply. I wish it had never happened. And I certainly hope that no believer in the New Life Baptist Church will ever serve as a stumbling block to another unbeliever about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Let us be what we say we are in Christ. And let the world see us as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, called or sent ones to go bear a message of salvation to a lost world and separated unto the gospel, committed to live differently, not for ourselves, but for the sake of the gospel, that people may turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the word separated here is an important word. In the Greek language, it is a word that would give you the idea of a horizon. We'll run into it again a little later on in this first sentence. But right here, the word is a word that gives you the idea of a horizon. It's where the, the sky meets the earth, the plains, as it were. The point made about this is it's the word that would describe boundaries boundaries marked or prescribed boundaries and so what Paul said all the boundaries in my life are for the purpose of getting out the gospel so people will listen when I speak and tell them about Jesus Christ all the boundaries in my life are not so I can get up and say well I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't participate in this and I just want to tell you I don't do that that's not what it's for. What it's for is so that my life will reflect the godliness, the holiness that the gospel can produce. 
And so that person can see an object lesson of the grace of God at work in a person's life by how changed they are. And that way, the Lord Jesus Christ is made to look good, honored, glorified, as the word is. That's the word Paul used here. The word carries with it boundaries. One other thing, and I think this is important. It literally is the ideal, and you'll find it elsewhere in the book of Romans, that Paul says in verse 1, he's separated unto the gospel. In one sense, every believer is already separated unto Christ. In one sense. We call it positional, if you please. So we're already separated unto Christ. So what I would say to you from what Paul writes here, he's declaring he's separated unto the gospel. I'd say to you, you and me this morning, you're already separated unto Christ, but live up to that standard now. He's already put you in that position. Now let your life and your position match each other with one purpose in mind. So when you open your mouth to tell someone of what Jesus Christ has done for you, they can look at your life and say, I believe you. It's changed you. It can change me. I believe you. I'll trust your Christ. I'll believe him as my Savior. I close this morning ask you a simple question. Do you know Christ for sure? For certain? Is he your Savior? If you died right where you sit in the pews of the New Life Baptist Church, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven? If you are not, you can be. Not because I can do anything about it. It's because Christ has already done everything that need be done about it. And it's up to you now to be obedient to the gospel. And that's a simple process. It may seem hard, but I can tell you right up front that it is not that far from the front of the church to the back. But for you to get out of your pew and walk to the front will seem the longest distance you've probably ever walked in your life but it will probably be the most fruitful walk you've ever made. This morning, I invite you to come to faith in Him. As believers, I'd exhort you to live up to who you are in Christ. Be a servant, an honorable position. The first, the label that Paul puts on himself to book, to start the great book of Romans, the great constitution of the Christian faith, the first thing he says about himself is, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a humble way to begin a great book. It's a good way to start a new life for you and me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and thank you for the truth of this book of the Bible and thank you for the Apostle Paul who sets it forth under the inspiration of the Holy Scripture, Holy Spirit. And these, the Holy Scriptures, are for us and our, our learning and our admonition. I pray today that you'll drive the truths home that we've considered this morning and I pray that you'll bring forth fruit that's counted and ordained for this hour. I pray for any man, woman, boy, or girl in this building who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior today. Oh, how I pray for them, as other people have prayed for them, and even our college prayer meeting last night, praying for people who came to the services today that did not know Christ. And I pray for them that they may come to faith in Jesus Christ right now. Please help them to know that they're among friends. This is not something for which we will mock or make fun. It is something that the angels of heaven, as with us here, will rejoice over when they turn to Christ. And help them, Father, to know also that it will be the most important decision they'll ever make in all of their life. And it will be the foundation upon which all other decisions will be made. I pray, draw them to yourself. I pray for the believers in this room, and for myself included. I pray, help me to be a, a more of a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Help me to be a doulos, a bond slave of the master. And help me to realize more fully and more completely that my greatest freedom is when I am the most slavish to the Savior. And help me to know also that even though I can't be an apostle, I am a sent one. I am one that when I leave the services of the New Life Baptist Church and go out of this building into the byways of this community, I have been sent by the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings to bear the greatest message that this world has ever been privileged to hear, that there is a Savior. He died for the sins of mankind, young and old alike. He was buried, and for as a stamp of the Father's approval on His work and the acceptance of the penalty paid and the price paid for sin, He raised Him from the dead, and He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for those of us who believe. Father, I pray, help me to tell that message and bear that message, and especially during this season of the year. And help me also, Father, to remain separated unto the gospel, separated from the things of this world that would drain me, that would distract me, that would indeed destroy me, that I might indeed get the gospel to every person I can, that I not be a stumbling block to them. They would not be able to point to my sin and my failures as my um, process or problem with the message, but rather they would look at my life and, and see, though it is not perfect and though it is not sinless, it is forgiven. And it is being prepared day by day, moment by moment, by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit in His Word to fit me for things above. So please work in our hearts as believers on these counts. And get the glory to yourself through every decision made in this room this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us please, 282 in your hymn book, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, you need to trust Christ to save you if you come.